Brother, help me! And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where we never have to talk about Triple G versus Canelo again. And I, for one, am happy as hell about that. It's about time we got to this point where we could just put it to bed because I, I had that feeling when this fight was announced. It was, it was a fight that no one really wanted. It didn't, it didn't put anything to bed because essentially it was a hiding to nothing for Canelo. You lose and everyone's going to poo-poo your career, right? If you win, now you beat a 40-year-old man who's on his last legs. Was never going to win, but it was a cash grab. Canelo got some easy money for a relatively easy night's work. But deep down, you know, if you're, if you're really deep into the science of the sport, what you know is he should have taken the immediate Bivol rematch. And the fact that he didn't probably speaks volumes. But today I just want to talk about the fight, you know, let's just round up what's happened in boxing now. As rec- as I'm recording this, you, you know, those in Britain understand that it's a it's a somber day today. I mean, if you listen out your windows today, there's not much noise. You know, people are generally in a period of reflection. Whether you're pro or anti monarchy, this is a day almost by design where we're all in our houses and we've just got some time to to pause and think. And you know, that's what I've been doing around this whole Canelo-Golovkin thing. And number one, let's just address the elephant in the room. How the hell was that $85 on pay-per-view? How did we go from Eddie Hearn telling us pay-per-view was dead? That's what he said. Now, he can qualify that any way he wants now, right? But this is what he said. Pay-per-view is dead. And then he walked it back and he said, pay-per-view at those $70, $80, $90 price points is dead. That's what he said, right? And you're like, okay, fine. Okay, so DAZN will come in with a lower pay-per-view proposition, right? (laughs) No. They came in with the $85 pay-per-view for a fight that no one really wanted. Well, however you want to slice it, no one really wanted it. It wasn't high on the list. And especially in a week where we're talking about AJ versus Fury, Spence versus Crawford, even Usyk versus Wilder. This wasn't the fight that was going to get our, our hearts and our souls excited. And at $85, definitely not. So I feel sorry for anyone who had to pay $85 on top of the subscription charge to a platform that told you pay-per-view was dead. Yet every one of you fans will still believe the words that come out of Eddie Hearn's mouth because I'm going to use this expression a lot because it applies a lot in this case. 
You're behaving like girlfriends. You found your man, Eddie Hearn, and you're going to stand by him no matter what. You're going to cheerlead. You're going to tub thump. You're going to hula hoop. I mean, you're going to get on your knees for him. No matter what he does to you, no matter how abusive he is, he gave you Canelo fights for free. Then he made you pay for them. And if you don't think that's coming over here, you're an idiot. But at $85, the initial expectation is that this has been a dud. And often you can tell how big a fight is, right? If you go on social media, either during the fight or after, on my timeline, it's normally just stacked with boxing talk. For this Canelo Triple G one, it wasn't. Because people are just like, eh, whatever. Not that important. And now you look at Eddie Hearn and go, what rabbit are you going to pull out the hat now? Because that's your biggest cash cow. And we're fast running out of people for Canelo to fight. Fast running out of people for Canelo to fight. And I don't think Canelo's doing much for the subscriber growth. And I've said this so many times to people and they don't get it. Nobody at DAZN is remunerated. They don't get a bonus. They don't get a pay rise based on how many times Eddie Hearn's on IFL. They don't get rewarded based on how many times Eddie Hearn does interviews. They get rewarded by two things, subscriber growth and revenue growth. And if Eddie Hearn's not part of that, he's not at the top table. So I imagine at the moment, Eddie doesn't get to talk to the CEO, Shea. He doesn't. He has to talk to someone like Joel Markovsky or James Rushton. He has to talk to somebody else who talks to him because Eddie's not that important to the growth anymore. I also saw that DAZN had launched their, their betting proposition, you know, which is understandable. Follow the Sky model. If you've got sport, you may as well have some betting capability attached to it. And that shows you that they have so little faith in boxing, driving growth. It's, it's a tech business that does a little bit of sport now. And... Eddie charging $85 for a pay-per-view. I don't even think that's his decision. I just think someone in there said, this is what we've got to charge to make our return back on or what we're paying these guys. So it's going to be interesting to see how DAZN start to monetize their boxing content and then subsequently their general sporting content because I don't believe it's going to be a lower cost proposition to Sky in the long run. And like I said, I can't understand how we can have in the UK three major platforms competing for the same few million eyes. So at some point, they have to consolidate. And maybe DAZN are just preparing for a trade sale or, or an IPO or some kind of integration because they can't keep charging $85 per pay-per-view. They don't have the talent to sustain that. But look, let's, let's zero back in on the fight. And the thing I learned from this fight above all else is Triple G should never have left Abel Sanchez. Whatever Abel Sanchez was asking for, is what he should have had. Now, yes, you can go with Jonathan Banks because he's cheaper. He he will accept whatever terms are given, but you want to pay that low level to get, I mean, you're going to get Jonathan Banks. And I don't know what it is about Jonathan Banks. I don't understand how he's managed to parlay a career based on the fact that he's not Emmanuel Stewart, essentially. And everything that happened subsequent to the passing of Emmanuel Stewart has shown that Jonathan Banks would struggle to produce British champions as far as I'm concerned. That's my honest assessment of him. I don't think he's that good. I don't think he's that inspirational. I don't think he's that 
tactically astute. A lot of the kind of ex-cronkers have made careers grifting off that name. And really only Sugar Hill is the guy that's really put some rubber on the road and shown he can make a difference. The rest of them, just a load of nonsense as far as I'm concerned. And you saw that with Golovkin. At, at his best, Gennady Golovkin is a combination puncher. Yeah, He's a relentless combination puncher and he breaks your will and he breaks your spirit. Abel Sanchez understood that. How many years did we hear, I bring real Mexican style? How many times did we hear that? And Abel Sanchez going, I'm just giving him that Mexican style. To then going to Jonathan Banks's uh, overly elaborate while doing nothing sort of posturing, which he sort of made a lane for himself for. And Golovkin looks like a fish out of water doing that. It wasn't a coincidence that Golovkin looked best in the final three rounds when he almost dispensed with the tactical game plan and went, I'm just going to do what I trust. And that's throwing punches in punches. And maybe he could have, if he had just, if he had started that way, maybe he could have had Canelo in trouble. I'm not saying he would have done, but he would have been as outclassed as he was. And I, I put that solely at the door of Jonathan Banks because he has a track record of, of taking good guys and making them mediocre. But like I said, he, people go to him for interviews. He's always in the press that so people assume he's good because he does interviews. That fight was screaming for a combination puncher. That fight was screaming for Gennady Golovkin to come in with hooks, uppercuts, stiff jabs, all on the front foot. Why he was stepping back and circling like, like he was Bob Foster in 1969, I don't understand. I'm like, what? Why? When you're good at something, when you've built a fan base on something, when you've been successful at obliterating people, and he did that, with a certain style. Why change? Like, really only Matthew, uh, not Matthew Macklin, uh, what's his name? Martin Murray was one of the few guys to really stand up to that onslaught from a prime Golovkin, and he didn't even last the distance. That style that broke Macklin, that broke Daniel Gill, that broke Gabe Rosado, where was that on Saturday? When it was needed, where was that? I'm not going to blame Golovkin for that. I want to blame Jonathan Banks. Why was Golovkin running around the perimeter of the ring? Why was he using his legs at 40? What legs do you have at 40? That's all Jonathan Banks knows. That is all Jonathan Banks knows. Oh, yeah, just jab and move. He, he trains everybody like they're six foot eight. And you've got poor old Golovkin there trying to box like he's six foot eight. And Canelo's like, God, you're making this easy for me. That's another trainer in the hoax category. Another trainer in the hoax category. And no one pull up what he did assisting Emmanuel Stewart. There's a big difference between assisting and you putting your nuts on the line. And every time he's put his nuts on the line, he's looked terrible. Is it a coincidence that everyone's looked worse? Like people have had their career worst performances when Jonathan Banks has been in the corner. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm going to say on that matter. I wasn't really sold on that. The tactics were horribly wrong. They clearly didn't understand how you get at Canelo. They probably watched Bivol and said, well, if we can just keep him at keep him at bay with the jab, yeah, we could work him. Okay, fine. But Bivol was taller and longer than Canelo. Golovkin barely is if he even is. 
What about pressing him? What about making life uncomfortable for him like, like someone like Cotto did? That's what Golovkin can do best, but they didn't want to do that. And that's okay. But that was basically, he was on a hiding to nothing from the start. And I thought Canelo had a relatively easy night of it, in all honesty. But we need to understand the most important thing is that Golovkin is 40 years old. I don't think people understand how hard it is to be in that shape to fight for that long at 40. Okay, he hasn't had the longest career. He may have turned pro at 24, 25. But that's still a 15, 16 year career the guy's had. Think about that. 15, 16 year career of being in camps and doing big bear altitude, sparring, you know, fighting, putting your face in harm's way, really relying on your chin. That's insane. That, that, that is like just being able to do that at 40 boggles the mind because at that point he's rich enough where he could just be like, what am I doing this for? And that's when you know he really loves the sport and you can't knock someone for that. And I'll never knock Golovkin for his enthusiasm for boxing and his willingness to participate. He's always been able to do that. Does that make him great? Absolutely not. But it does make him a compelling character. And it's easy at this point to say, yeah, both guys must have been on PEDs and stuff. Ah, okay. But who isn't? Who at the top level in this game, who on this planet who has the money, the resources and the desire isn't on PEDs of some description? Who? There you go. Even so, at 40, when your body doesn't react as well to the PEDs as it may have done at 29, to eke out a 12-round decision. Remember, Canelo stopped a few guys, a few younger guys, more mobile guys, more skillful guys. Canelo stopped them, and he couldn't stop Golovkin. They had to do 36 rounds together. That's a massive tribute to how tough Gennady Golovkin is. Like, you don't manufacture that toughness. That's not created in a lab. That's not injected into you. That's, you're raised that way. He's one tough man. He's one hard man. And if he does fight again, I hope he doesn't. But if he does fight again, I don't believe he'll get stopped either. I genuinely think this might be that sort of George Foreman type toughness that just goes deep into the 40s. But we can't just make this about Golovkin. You've got to give Canelo credit because he was coming into this fight and this is why the fight was made. He was coming in off an embarrassing loss because it didn't look like Canelo knew what to do against Bivol. And he didn't really do a lot of damage to Bivol. So we're now talking about Bivol having beaten Canelo easily. And that hurts your pride. And that kind of hurts your, your integrity. So to come back from that and face your nemesis. And remember, you're dealing with the pressure of the fact that, you know, the boxing girlfriends genuinely think you lost two fights. Despite what the, the people who are paid to do this said. The people who don't get paid to do this, because most of them aren't good enough, they hit full girlfriend mode for Golovkin and they said, listen, Canelo, you lost. You lost twice. That's what they said. So you're dealing with all of that and you don't know how bad Golovkin's going to be because he was able to stop uh, Ryoto Murata, right? Ryoto Murata, sorry. He was able to stop him. And then I'm like, okay, impressive. You know, he's still, he's still got something left. So you wondered if, you know I mean, Golovkin would have that Roberto Duran type performance. 
that Carl Froch versus George Gross performance where it was just that one big fight in him, that one massive moment where he could make boxing fans fall in love with the sport again. And so Canelo is dealing with all of these pressures. And as we found out in the press conference, an injured hand as well. And he goes into this fight. I think he was surprised at what he saw. I think he was fully prepared for real trench warfare. Down in the basement of hell type fight. I think that's what he was prepared for. And so for Golovkin to come out and try and out outpoint him, you know, try and be the sharper shooter at 40 years old, Canelo must have smiled and said, ah, this is going to be easy. You know, move my head a bit, counter, lead with some hooks, go to the body, you know, snap his head back with some shots. He did all of that. His timing was better. Punch speed was better. His shot selection was better. But he didn't have much coming back. As I said before, once Golovkin stops being a combination puncher, he's like 40% the fighter that he normally is. Because he gives you thinking time. He gives you time to move. The thing that made Golovkin special, if you go back to that destructive period when he was just basically mincing Brits and Australians, it was that he was always in front of you and he was always ready to go. Always. He wasn't stepping back and circling. He didn't need to do any of that. Yeah? He'd catch shots on the gloves, a little bit of head movement, and then come straight in and just bludgeon you. And that scared people because it gave them no thinking time. Gave them no reaction time. Meanwhile, you're shipping heavy punishment. We saw none of that. So Canelo had a relatively easy time of it. Golovkin wasn't throwing enough shots to, to tire him out. Nothing. And we know Canelo's got conditioning issues. None of this happened. So Canelo has an easy night of it. He's just able to throw any shot that he wants. And, you know, give Golovkin credit. Still knows how to use the, the forearms to deflect, the gloves to deflect. So you don't really hit him clean unless you time him properly. And that's what Canelo was able to do on occasion. But it was an easy fight for me. I thought Canelo walked it. You can make it 10-2, 9-3. Um, I saw the judges had it 7-5. Maybe they saw something I didn't, so I'm not going to knock him for it. The important thing is the right man won. And won easily. But my question is, huh, will that win mask a lot of problems Canelo has? Because he's not old, old. So he should be able to do 12 rounds without fatiguing. But he never seems able to do 12 rounds without fatiguing. And is that down to, because he's 60 odd fights into his career, right? Is that catching up with him now? Because he must be a 15, 16 year veteran too. Is that catching up to him? Did he make a mistake fighting four times in one year like he did before? Did that burn, did that burn the system? Does he need a year to recover? I don't know. But there's something about that Canelo performance that says to me, that version of Canelo would get smoked by Carl Froch. The Froch that beats Groves smokes him, absolutely cooks him. And those who know me and those who know my, my relationship with Froch will know that's semi-hard to say. But that, that version of Froch would have smoked Canelo because he wouldn't have let Canelo rest. Just wouldn't have let Canelo rest. That version of Froch would have crushed Golovkin as well. 
because he wouldn't let Golovkin rest. There'd have been no space. People forget that. So when we look at this fight, I have a feeling if I'm Canelo, I'm not looking for hard fights now. Maybe 160 was his optimum weight and going up to 175 did something that he's never recovered from. I don't know. But I wouldn't be going up to light heavyweight again if I was Canelo and I wouldn't be hanging around at 168 either. I don't think that's a good weight for him. It feels like he's carrying too much because remember, he went from 154 to 168, much like Jeff Lacey did. And Lacey never looked as good at 168. You don't see Canelo going in for the kill. You don't see him throwing you know, multiple sequences of combinations. He just doesn't do that anymore. Like he's really just trying to catch you with that perfect shot, that clean shot. And I don't know if, I don't know if it's that long until people figure out that he can't work. And is that why he's avoiding Benavides? Yes, it's easy to say, ah, David Benavides hasn't won anything of note. Okay. Then beat him. Beat him. Quick defense. You put that to bed. Now you can fight whoever you want. But until he fights Benavides, we'll always believe that Benavides throws too many punches for Canelo to deal with. Because you can't slip, bob and roll all of those Benavides punches. And they keep on coming. I don't think Canelo's scared of Benavides, but I do think he understands how hard that fight really is. That's a hard, hard fight. But overall, let's just summarize the fight. This was a fight that Golovkin thought he could win on a jab. Didn't really throw his right hand. That was heaven for Canelo. Because he was like, okay, I only have to deal with one hand. I've got enough skill and timing to deal with that. Let's see if Golovkin's got the same skill and timing to deal with my, my counterattacks. And he didn't. And that's why Golovkin lost easily. You know, if you look at the reaction in the boxing world, it just ranged really. And it depended whether you're pro or anti-Canelo. But a lot of the energy was talking about how Golovkin looked old in there. How he was fighting the wrong way. You know, how he had no timing and his legs were looking shaky and this wasn't the Golovkin we're used to. You know, you're seeing a man with virtually no hair on top of his head. All of these things that just, they don't look great. And so all of those reactions about Golovkin, or they always take me back to what Floyd said, and it's got to be about six years ago. And they just said, seemingly Golovkin's judged on a different standard to everybody else. If we look at the people who are really doing it now, you know, Usyk had to move up, right? And people said, ah, yeah, he won at Cruiserweight, great, but he's going to have to go up to heavyweight. That was the general consensus amongst the boxing public. Pacquiao had to move up. Marquez, Barrera, um, Cotto, Mayweather, De La Hoya, Hopkins, Tony, Roy Jones Jr., all of these people that we put on this pedestal, Sugar Ray Leonard, Tommy Hearns, Duran, all of these guys we put on a pedestal, maybe even Hagler. I think, did Hagler start off at 154? No idea, can't remember. Everyone's had to move up. And not just move up by default, move up to go and chase those harder fights. From what I understand, Golovkin's one of the few people in a long time, apart from Carl Froch, who was never under pressure to move up. Never under pressure to move up. And that baffles me. He was never under pressure to move up. Yeah, why doesn't Golovkin go up and fight Carl Froch? Why does he have to move up? Why can't people move down? Right? And then they were, these were the same people that then said, yeah, Floyd should fight Golovkin at 160. Why can't they fight at 155? Why should Golovkin have to move down? 
if Floyd's truly the best ever, he can just move up. And that's when I realised that Golovkin fans aren't necessarily boxing fans. They're Golovkin fans. And much like Eddie Hearn fans, if they could drop to their knees in front of Golovkin, they would. They would. They'd make him breakfast every morning. They'd clean his house. They'd iron his shirts. And they'd do it in a frilly apron as well. Because they want to show how much they, they're willing to submit to him. Despite, despite everything their eyes tell them, they're willing to submit to him. Crazy. Like, Golovkin fans are like Liverpool fans like eight, nine years ago. The level of delusion they lived in they just made them unpleasant to be around. Just unpleasant. You know the sort of people who wear those tap-out T-shirts, right? Haven't trained a day in their life, but they wear that tap-out T-shirt, they've got the full-sleeve tattoo, and at home they've got a samurai sword. Yeah? They may have a Range Rover Sport parked on the driveway as well. You know those sorts of people who they want to project this tough image without wanting to actually earn it. And that's what a lot of Triple G fans are. I don't know if anyone could hear the crowd on Saturday, but it just sounded like those, those sort of weirdos that also you know, were fans of Tito Ortiz for no other reason than he had the name Bad Boy as a nickname. So the sooner Golovkin retires, the sooner we can silence those guys, but they'll just find someone else to be the girlfriend of. It's almost like, does anyone remember there was an episode of American Dad? And I think it was Principal Lewis had a, a prison bitch. And so the rule of the prison bitch was to get the prison bitch, you had to beat up the husband. In this case, it was Brian Lewis, right? So, so Stan had to beat up Brian Lewis and he got the prison bitch. The prison bitch is essentially Golovkin fans and Hearn fans as well. That's what the prison bitch is to me. That's a metaphor for that. They will just go wherever. So these guys who are now on Golovkin's nuts, when he retires, they'll find someone else. I don't know, maybe Bam Rodriguez or someone like that. And they'll do the same thing. You know, they'll, they'll talk loudly, probably never buy a ticket, never buy a pay-per-view, but they'll tweet loudly for him. Yeah, good luck to him. But I've just said, don't mind Golovkin. I don't think Golovkin's an all-time great. I don't think you can. I don't think you can go as deep into his career as he did before fighting Gabe Rosado. Considering what we're trying to call him now, one of the greatest of all time, it took him what 20, 21 fights to fight Gabe Rosado, and then Golovkin has his run of twelve fights between Gabe Rosado and fighting Canelo, where he's basically just fighting. I don't even know what you call them. It's the same level of opponent, right? It's a Gabe Rosado level of opponent. Guys who, if they're lucky, could win a world title. And people say, yeah, you're talking about Danny Jacobs. I am. I don't think Danny Jacobs is elite. Nothing about him has ever been elite. But he's a good middleweight fighter. He's a good super middleweight fighter. But he's not elite. Elite fighters that Gennady Golovkin has faced. Canelo 1, Canelo 2, Canelo 3. That is it. He hasn't won a single one of those fights. Before anyone tries to be slick and say, yes, he did, show me on BoxRec where Gennady Golovkin has beaten Canelo. Yeah, let's just talk facts. I don't care about people's opinions. I really, really don't. The simple fact is Golovkin hasn't beaten the one elite guy that he fought three times. 
you don't get into the Hall of Fame like that. You can't get in the Hall of Fame because of who ducked you. You can't. Yeah. Golovkin hasn't done enough. Like, he's not even close. Like, you don't even put him on the ballot with names like Macklin, Gill, uh, Murray, Rosado, Devrianchenko, uh, Umar. You don't put you don't put someone in with an Ishida, Jesus Christ. You don't put guys in. You don't get on the ballot with names like that. I mean, like they're not challenges. When you're talking about this guy may, maybe being the greatest middleweight since Hagler, you're disrespecting guys like Bernard Hopkins, who fought people like Trinidad, De La Hoya, Jermaine Taylor. Roy Jones, all at middleweight. That's ignoring the names like Joppy, Glenn Johnson, Howard Eastman. That's what a Hall of Fame record looks like. There are elite people they have fought and you can point to them. Win, lose or draw at that level is irrelevant. The fact is they're in that company. Golovkin isn't. He's not in that company. People would rate Gennady Golovkin above someone like a Corey Spinks. Think about that. You'd rate Gennady Golovkin against, above a guy like Corey Spinks. That's when you know some of these fans aren't serious boxing fans. But hold on, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that I might have gone a bit too deep in on that, on that fight. Um, so let's, let's try and bring things back to, to our shores, back to the UK, you know, especially on such a poignant day. Um, Frank puts out a show on Friday and, you know, I did complain. I said, you know, why would you have this show? And then Parker versus Joyce as well. You know, should Denzel Bentley be headlining? What's essentially a next gen card? I, I don't feel he should have done. I feel he's, he's above that status now. I think if you look at Denzel, we'll talk about the fight in a second, but just look at his profile in, in two years. Denzel Bentley's fought six times. Heffron twice. Uh, Cash. I think it's Sam Evans, Linus Adolphia, Marcus Morrison. If ever someone has delivered for Frank, I think it's Denzel. He's given you compelling fights. All six of those are fights you could watch again. Yeah, simple. He's, if Frank's got a list of five guys that would definitely get him um, traction, Denzel's one of those guys. And he's still got that British belt. So we'll come on to him in a second, but he shouldn't have been on that card. But the card is what it is, right? And things I was looking out for on that card were primarily you know, the development of Aidan Muhammad because he's obviously trained by a good friend of mine. So I, I wanted to see how that development was. Um, fell from a bit because he's quite a tall bantamweight and he's fighting a guy who's, what, 4 foot 10, 4 11. He looked tiny. I don't know how small that guy is, but he looked tiny. And he was awkward, Southpaw moving around, but got the stoppage. And I, when, I speak to, when I speak to Don about Aiden, what I like is he's excited by the development path. A lot of times you talk to trainers and they get excited about the here and now. And that's cool, but they never talk about what needs to come tomorrow. They never do. But you talk to Don and Don will tell you the stuff he sees is good today, but he's excited about what's coming down the track. And he'll always say that to me. He'll say, look, give it five fights and see what he does. 
And I like seeing that in a trainer because that means you're driving standards in your sessions. So I was um, happy that they got the win. Happy they got the stoppage because I think he needed that. He probably needs a run of two, three, four, five stoppages just to, to get that, that broader public excitement. Because I think people are excited about Aidan Mohammed in the, in the trade, in the sport, but he hasn't had that signature moment where, you, where it can go viral and you can go, right, everyone get behind this kid. So he needs that, but he shouldn't go chasing it. I think it will come naturally as he, he fills out and solidifies. Uh, also I was also interested to watch Ellis Zorro, right? Because he just come off that boxer tournament. And so they put him in with Deck Spellman. And I always think Deck is an interesting character for this reason above all else. He's definitely a hard man at light heavy, right? No question about that. He's shown that. I think he was only stopped by Anthony Yard. So going up to Cruiser, I didn't know what Deck Spellman we'd get. It kind of just looks like he didn't try and make weight for 175. And he sort of, so that was like almost like, you know, Dex Bellman four, six weeks after a fight. Yeah, the weight just went on. Um, you know, you look at Ellis Zorro and he should be a wrecking machine. That's what you want to see. You want to see a wrecking machine because he seems to have all the attributes to do that. And we didn't see that on Friday. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. It's just saying we didn't see that. And sometimes I wonder, and I did tweet this, when you come from that kind of educated background, it's very hard to box. And I found this personally because you, you, you overthink things and people say, what's overthinking? You know, obviously I'm not spending three days working up on want a jab or not, but I'm almost trying to be too good. And when you try and be too good, you end up getting caught by stuff you shouldn't be getting caught by. Whereas sometimes all, what you need to do is just literally bang your gloves and go, right, let's have it. And you just get stuck in. You know, I remember, I think Domak and Ladi had a similar problem where he'd almost overthink his performance. And then he fought that Adam Mackay. It got dropped, came back straight after and stopped him. And that was the Dom we wanted to see. It's almost like Dom needs to get put down. And then you see the best of him. Uh, incidentally, he fights on September 24th against Solomon Dakers. Intriguing fight that. Because I don't know what version of Dom we're going to get like Dom's 40 he must be he has to be 42 now so he's not going to be as quick as he's been he's not going to have the legs that he used to have but what Dom what Dom will always have is that that ability to be elusive that ability to not get caught but it's just about how bad he wants to make a name for himself like he's been training all through the lockdown I know that for sure and it's about whether he's got that that fire in him to come and show the the country, because this might be the biggest stage Dominic's actually boxed on. And so he's got a real chance to, to show what he can do. And hopefully he does. Like, Dom's a friend. I'll always love Dom. And I think with a few tweaks here and there, various points in his, probably in his formative years, he would have been an absolute monster. Real throwback style. Could do everything. You know, but hey, Life, life takes us where it takes us. So, in terms of Elizora, I wonder if he can unlock that demon that is in him somewhere. Can he unlock that and consistently do that in every fight? Because if he can, he should do a lot of damage. And that's going to be the challenge he has. Where do I find that inner demon? Where do I find that, 
that intensity and that fury to really go at someone. But, but happy he got the win. Um, young kid, Arnold Obadai. I think, you know, got to judge him in a few fights time, but he's got to start looking to, to really hurt people. You know, then there's that transition from the amateurs to the pros. I don't think he's quite got right yet, but when he gets that right, he looks like he should do a lot of damage. You know, that's the sort of guy you want to put in with uh, Daniel Mendes or someone like that. Uh, who else thought that was of interest to me? Oh, really? I think just talk about Denzel, right? So when, this, when the fight was made between Denzel and Marcus Morrison, I was asked what I thought about it. And I just said, I just said Denzel crushes him. Absolutely crushes him. I thought coming down from super mid would affect Marcus Morrison. I thought being hit that hard and Denzel hits really damn hard, I thought that would just sap his confidence. Because Marcus Morrison's best bet was he could outbox Denzel. That was what he was meant to do, right? He was, when he was going to outbox Denzel, build up a three, four round lead, and have Denzel be reckless in chasing him. And then you can pick him off from there, right? Keep him at range, pick your shots, do this, do that. And I'm sure... As a gym, Joe probably sat with Hefron and they all sat there and said, okay, what's this Denzel really like? And you, you can talk it till the cows come home. When you get hit by some of those shots that he throws, and it's, it's not even necessarily the head shots, it's the ones that go to the arm, the shoulder. Because they're the ones you can gauge and you're like, I think he gets stronger as the rounds go on. And you could see that with Marcus Morrison. In the beginning, he was shocked. And then he was like, okay, cool. This is cool. He can't keep this up. And then you get to like round three. It's like, how's he still doing this? And you can see Denzel really starting to break him down and sap that confidence because Marcus Morrison needs that confidence. And he was sapping it because Denzel, be clear, Denzel was getting caught, but he was able to ride it. Like Denzel's chin's pretty good because Cash hit him with a lot of shots. And he was able to, to take those. I'd rather he didn't have to, but he took those. And he showed that he's a tough man. And here's where I'm going to rate Joe Gallagher. Joe could see, you see, how I saw the fight playing out in my head is what happened in the ring. And luckily, Joe saw that as well. And once you start to see that blood splattering everywhere, and you can see Marcus, he's starting to sag a little bit. And there was a left hook to the body that Denzel threw. Now, I couldn't hear it because I wasn't ringside, unfortunately. But when I saw that, that hook land and I saw the little twitch from Marcus, and I think Joe saw that as well. Towel came out. Joe came right in the ring and said, I've got to protect my guy. That's being, a good, that's being a good trainer. That's being a good cornerman. That's compassion. That's knowing what the right thing to do is. Not many people have that. He knew it, what the right thing to do was and he did the right thing. Now, contrast that with Frank Arnold's corner. So number one, Frank Arnold massively overmatched. You could tell from the first round, this kid's in way over his head. I can't remember the opponent's name off the top of my head, but you know, the little guy, uh, was he Southport? I think he was. And he just came straight out and was just drilling. And I was like, wow, Frank Arnold's not strong enough to tame this guy. So how the hell is he going to get through this? And he didn't. 
got dropped heavily in the third round. Ropes kept him up, so he took an extra shot. Referee wasn't close enough to intervene at that point. Should have stopped that. Then he gives the kid time to recover. Fine. Yeah. Has him in the corner. Uh, put your gum shield back in. Yada, yada, yada. And everyone with, with a modicum of boxing knowledge was like, this kid's done. Don't let him count. He's not, it's not like he was winning the fight and he got caught. He was losing the fight and he got caught. Corner let him back out. Why the hell they did that? I have no idea. And he just got, oh man. When you see that, it's heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching because you knew that there's nothing the kid could have done about that shot. There was nothing, there was nothing he could have done about that shot that put him out. He didn't need to go out and take that shot. And not one media outlet, no IFL, no boxing, whatever. No one's going to go to that trainer and go, what the hell were you thinking? There's no accountability for trainers being idiots. There never has been. But I tell you what, though. Had that been Tunde Ajayi in the corner, had that been Tunde going, yeah, mate, go out there, that would have been all over Twitter. It would have been all over Twitter. But what I'd say, in summary, is we need to be very careful how we match guys. We need to be very careful how we build these guys up. Because the kid Frank Arnold looked way out of his depth. He, he took that kind of knockout where I don't think he'll box again. He may try it again, but that's just knocked the, the passion out of him. You don't recover from those sorts of shots. You just don't recover. Because that was, was so savage, it looked unhealthy. Really looked unhealthy. And you've got to contrast that with the way Joe Gallagher handled his corner. Because, and he may not like me saying this, there was never a hope in hell of Marcus Morrison putting a dent in Denzel Bentley. They just wasn't. And we can all go back to the podcast I did with him where people talk about, you know, and I do. I said, was that really the right thing to say and do? And I got pulled up and people said, you hate the peacock. And I don't hate the peacock, quite frankly. The peacock can do what the peacock do. But I love Denzel Bentley. I genuinely do. And whoever's training him will be accountable for delivering excellence. Because when you've got that rare gift of power that doesn't seem to diminish, it's on your team to prepare you to be elite. Because you have elite level power. They just need to put all the other components together too. So now I look at Denzel after that performance. I go, where, do you, where, where does he go next? I keep saying it. Some maturation fights. A Danny Dignam, for example. Let him have a Danny Dignam fight. Let him have a Hamza Shiraz fight. Yeah, If he can get Dignam and Shiraz as his defenses for Lonsdale, fair. I think that's fair enough. And then move him up. I'd, like I've said, I tweeted this. I'd put him in with Ryota Murata today. If Frank's got the budget to make that happen, why not? Yeah, put him in with someone like that. And let's see what happens. Um, based on Saturday, would you, would you put him in with Triple G? <sighs> Maybe a fight away. But I wouldn't be afraid to put him in with Eubank Jr. I... I have that much belief in what Denzel's capable of. And I've seen, 
If you remember that episode him and I did after the Felix Cash fight, to see how he's developed physically, to see how his training's improved, to see how he's grown as a person, how he's grown as a leader within the Peacock, how he's found his voice, you know, like Denzel Bentley is an identifiable character now in boxing. And then I roll it all the way back to when we did that IFL interview at the Royal Albert Hall. What a journey in three years. Three and a half years, I should say. What an absolute crazy journey. And that's what I mean. Like, let's not drop the ball on Denzel Bentley because he's one of those guys that can make this country proud. He's one of those guys that will make this country proud. Are there still things he needs to work on? 100%. His work rate could be probably 20 to 25% better. And I think when he's able to do that, he becomes super scary. He becomes triple G at his best type scary. I think, as I've, met, as I've talked about before, sometimes you've got to play with the texture of your punches. Not everything has to be heavy. Yeah. But you want the heavy shots to mean something. But that comes with experience. But he's well on the right track. So I am absolutely delighted for him. You know, 100% delighted. Um, trying to think what else has happened in the world of boxing. Just realize, man, I am blitzing it. Man. You guys are getting a lot of time out of me today. Goodwin had a show on Saturday. And on that show was a kid that I used to train. But I sort of caught him at the early stage of his sort of amateur journey and I was sort of on my way out of that club. But young Jokey, I'm going to call him a Michi because I think that's his real surname. But he boxed inside this. He's gone to 2-0 and I'm really happy for him because I remember him being a young kid in the gym, just enthusiastic about everything. Just wanted to know everything about boxing, wanted to do everything, wanted to spar as soon as he could, wanted to learn how to throw the perfect jab. He was this great kid. And to see that he's gone on and done all this stuff. Because, you know, he, when you see him like in person, nice guy, heart of gold, sweet, kind, considerate. So that he's able to make the transition in the ring, man, I'm happy for him. And more importantly, I'm happy for my mate Danny Davis. Because Danny Davis is part of the team that trains him now as a pro, up at corner to corner. And you know, I've known Danny man, since the mid-2000s. Like Danny's a Fitzroy Lodge stalwart, Southeast London legend. Um, luckily, that man's gone grey before I have, and he's—I think he's older than me. So I'm happy. Uh, you got Martin Welsh on his way down as well as a pro trainer, and to see my generation from Fitzroy Lodge doing their thing now, man, I like—I'm so happy. Because for a long time we had to look at our metaphorical big brothers: Eddie Lamb, Adam Martin, Roy Connor. Uh, Mick Gilfoyle, uh, even Nigel Travis, even though him and I butt heads a lot. Those, those sort of like the, the OGs to us, like the older heads, the guys who imparted wisdom to us. And we've always looked at them. And then you kind of look around and go, well, which one of us is going to go and do that now? So to see Danny do that, and I know Danny's had to, to manage stuff in his own personal life. And I think he's found stability and happiness in boxing again. So I love that. I love the fact that it's boxing that's once again brought him to the fore and I'm happy for him. Same with Martin Welsh. These are just great people. And it's a sign that, and I always say this about the Lodge, okay, we didn't have a gym full of killers, but what we had was a gym full of human beings that could fight and were really nice people that 
I think members of the general public will grow to love anyway. So happy for Danny Davis, happy for all the guys who are coming through. Let's not forget Big Linton as well. He'll be coming through. Uh, give it two or three years. I mean, all of these guys are absolute heroes to me. Like, just so much love. And I told you, Dom Akinladi, man. Like, who would have thought my generation would still be this deeply involved in boxing? But now I'm absolutely happy for that. So credit where credit's due. Happy that Steve Goodwin can still put on shows because, you know, post-pandemic, we didn't know. And he seems to be getting numbers that are comparable to what Frank was getting on Friday. So kudos to Steve for doing that. Um, you know, we'll tip our hat off. Uh, the Wicked and Bad thing was on, I think I was on Sunday night. I haven't me had a chance to digest it yet, but I hear it was successful. So there's an alternative way for young kids to get into boxing. And as I said in the previous episode, these aren't kids who just walked into a gym yesterday. These are kids who really should be doing the, the under 10 bouts development championship, which is running now. That's what they should be doing. But they've gone for the money. Let me get a little payday, have a little fight, entertain the fans, build a profile for myself, and then turn that into something. And you can't knock that. They've realized that there are ways that they can control their own brand, their own IP, their own personality, and they don't have to dance through these old school boxing hoops. So credit where credit's due. Um, long may it continue. I'll hold that thought. And on that note, I'll say, look, if you have been to the funeral, hopefully that was a productive experience. If you've watched it on TV, hopefully it was equally valuable. If you haven't, I hope you've enjoyed your bank holiday. I will too. I'll be running around at some point today chasing an egg-shaped ball. Um, you know, we've got to keep on keeping on. And as always, man, if you love this, if you like it, show some support, share it, introduce someone else to it. And let's just keep this movement going. You know, we're very rarely wrong. We're very rarely wrong on this platform. Take care, guys. <laughs>